You did it again. <laughs> I do it every time. Yeah. Hello, 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 everybody. And welcome to Gritty Reboot. Hello, guys. How's it going out there? So we are done with the spooky season. And with that, we are going to be doing a non-horror film for the first time in a month. Yep. Which is fine. Today, we are going to be doing, I think, something I've looked forward to for a little while. And it's uh, The Fantastic Four. Yep. So we have uh, two films we're going to cover today. And so before we get started with anything else, I do want to mention, we are very aware that there are yes. three different versions of this film. That there is the Josh Trank film from 2015, the Tim Story movie from 2004, five, five, yeah, five thank you. And in 1994, Roger Corman produced a film, uh, The Fantastic Four. It's wrong. We didn't cover that movie for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it was never officially released. Yeah. So the, the movie was basically made um, so a studio could basically hold on to the rights for the Fantastic Four for a little bit longer than what was actually necessary. So it was just something made just to hold on to the rights. It just was, you know, filling a legal obligation. Sadly, they didn't tell any of the crew members, the actors that, who worked their ass off to make a movie that'll never see the light of day. But for the most part, most copies of it were destroyed, and if you find a version online, it is a old VHS bootleg second generation. Um, that's how I've seen it, um, and I don't think there's any other way to actually properly watch it besides, you know, even if you have a digital copy, it's probably just off that VHS. There's not a work print version rolling around or a 35 millimeter print, so it is what it is. Well, it, it is an interesting anomaly. It's not something we're going to cover today, because honestly, with these two other legitimate, legitimate films that have been released in theaters... We got a lot to talk about. Yeah. Exposure to a high energy cosmic storm could advance our knowledge about planetary life. To our future. I don't trust him. We got what we wanted. Just worried about what he wants. So I guess I want to bring up, uh, when did you see the Fantastic Four, the 2005 version? Oh, probably back in the day. Probably back in the day. Mm -hmm. I, I do remember uh, going to check this out in the theater, because this was a point, 2005, when I would have gone to have seen pretty much everything that came out in the theater that weekend. And the one thing I remember about it was I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's probably the, the main thing that I took away from it. There was one scene that I liked, and I talked to a friend about it, and, and that was about all I could remember from watching that movie for the first time. Uh, crowd reaction, pretty much zilch. I was excited to see uh, Julian McMahon in a different part because I was a big Nip Tuck fan yeah, at the time. Yeah, I know. And he, I mean, he isn't bad. The, he, he's not the problem. The uh, the characterization of Doom is probably the bigger issue. But So anyway, let, let, let's get started with this movie. So right. Yeah, go ahead. So, we got a star-studded cast of Jessica Alba as Susan Storm, Chris Evans as the Human Torch, Michael Chiklis as Ben Grimm, uh, Yon Gruffud as Reed Richards, mm -hmm. and Julian McMahon as uh, Victor Doom. Yeah, and as you can probably already tell from that, this isn't what you would call a star-studded cast. Now, Chris Evans would stick out in your mind like, oh, they got Captain America. Well, obviously, that was a ways off. He hadn't done that yet. This was the star of Cellular, 
and not another teen movie at yeah, this point. Which I love that movie. Yeah, that's uh, not another teen movie, not cellular. No one loves cellular. <laughs> yeah. Um, not another teen movie. Uh, probably one of my favorites of those. Oh, yeah. Like movie parodies. Me too. Yeah, of, that came from that era. That's one of the few that I actually like. So with that being said, this was a bit of a lower budget blockbuster. I know that seems like an oxymoron to kind of say, but that's where this film really fell into. This wasn't like a $200 million film, something like Spider-Man 2 or anything like that. You know, Fox didn't really want to put that kind of money into it. They didn't look at quite as high as the X-Men, so their expectations were a little bit lower, hence why you have, you know, TV stars like Jessica Alba and Yoan Gruffalo. I know it's not his name. Grifford. Grifford. I'm not saying that. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean, and also Michael Chiklis as well. Chiklis is probably the only person who's legitimately excited to be in this movie. He was a big Fantastic Four fan, and he championed for the role. And not only that, he also championed for it to be in a suit. He wanted to be on set every day in a suit. That's something he fought for to the nail. And he got it. And, And to be honest, looking back at it in 2005, I'm pretty glad he went with the suit. Yeah, he has to wear 60 pounds of latex and and sit through three hours of makeup. He wanted it. it. Yeah, he wanted it. He got it. And it does help. Like I said, I think having a CG character rolling around in 2005 probably wouldn't have turned out so well for this film. Would have aged really, really poorly. So I think doing this, it does look a little bit silly. I I think it works a lot better than what we might have had with the tech at the time, considering how some of the other effects in the movie really look. This is a bit of an effects picture for 2005. A bit. Yeah, and because of that... It has 900 special effects shots. <laughs> and you be, mean that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, that's where, you know, when you cut out on actors, you can pay more for special effects. But the problem is, you know, this is 2005. So we're talking almost 17 years of difference here between this movie to what we're used to today. And the effects really don't hold up well at all. Anytime Reed stretches, it looks terrible. Even the invisible effect doesn't really look all that great. No. Uh, the the fire effect, I mean, it's not awful. I mean, it, it's better than, you know, <laughs> it's better than what we had in 94 and what you might have seen probably at the time, but it's still not a particularly impressive effect, to be honest. There's there's really isn't like an effect in this movie. I'm like, wow, that looked really amazing. That that doesn't really occur. Right. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the rest of the cast? Like. I, I like Michael Chiklis, even though he's coming off the shield. Mm-hmm. I like him. Yeah. Um, Jessica Alba has never been a good actress, but bless her heart. She seems like a nice person. Yeah, yeah. Jessica Alba, she's really, uh, she's trying, I guess is what I can say. Like, you can tell. She's like, this is my big moment. Yeah. This is it. I've got to show everybody that I'm a good actress and I can go out there and I can nail this part. And it's not necessarily her fault things don't come together. Maybe her playing a scientist is not necessarily in her wheelhouse. And oddly enough, she's not as bad as some actresses I've seen trying to play a scientist. I think notable exceptions in this are Denise Richards playing Christmas Jones in one of the Bond sequels with Pierce Brosnan that I forgot. She plays a nuclear physicist and Denise Richards cannot come close to pulling it off. And Elizabeth Shue in The Shadow, um, not The Shadow, pardon me, The Saint. Uh, she plays a scientist as well. And anytime where she has to go into technical jargon, you can tell Elizabeth Shue has no fucking clue what she's talking about. <laughs> it's just one of those things. And, and Alba doesn't quite seem that bad in this movie. 
But one of the things that I think dooms her, she has no chemistry with Mr. Fantastic. She has no chemistry. <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing With at anybody all. on the cast. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess we should mention that this movie, for being made in 2005, uh, the same year that Batman Begins came out to kind of date where this is at, and we're still uh, four, more ye- four years away from Iron Man and the MCU, this movie is as cheery as could be. It's a sitcom, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is the, like the sitcom version of a comic book movie. Because X-Men was a, a prestige franchise really at that time. And this is not by Fox. You know, th- this is something that is very much more lighthearted, uh, much more of a family picture. You know, something that's supposed to not be very heavy on the system, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, you know, this is directed by uh, Tim Story. And Tim Story had given us a Barbershop and Taxi, uh, which also is a reboot itself that we will cover one day when we're truly out of ideas. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I want to say I absolutely love uh, Barbershop. We just hit the 20th anniversary of that film, and uh, Barbershop's a really well-done comedy, incredibly um, incredibly funny still to this day, really some great gags in it. Tim Story, I think, is a, a very good director in that respect, because people comedy directors don't get any respect. Yeah. They really don't, but it's very difficult to try to make a movie like that and, and make it funny. And I, I just don't think that Tim Story's skill set was quite prepared for being able to do the blockbuster action part of a of this movie. Because I, I think some of the comedy, you guys can't see me making quotation marks with my hands when I say comedy. Some of it made me smile. And like that might be the highest praise I can give it. I don't think I really laughed at anything, but some of the some of the comedy in there really made me you know, like I said, it gave me a little moment to smile, maybe a giggle. But there was nothing that I thought was truly hilarious in this movie. But some of it, like I said, was cute and charming enough. I, did you notice that Chris Evans forces himself on a nurse in this movie? He does. Yes, he does. He's a little, <laughs> he's a, well, I guess it's just how the Lothar, the heartthrob character was played in 2005. Yeah, yeah I totally that's just, noticed that's that. That's just the way it is. Yeah. That it was so, um, boundary breaking. Yeah. Yeah. He throws himself at a, um. I believe the first screen appearance of uh, Maria Menounos. Yeah. Um, she's the longtime uh, MTV News and Entertainment Weekly and Extra. Um, anytime you go to a movie, you're going to see Maria Menounos asking you trivia questions beforehand. She's been doing that role for about 20 years now. So, And she's great at it. And this was one of her few acting roles. And she's not very good here. And uh, the human torch, Johnny Storm, uh, is a little rapey towards her. And weirdly enough, she she loves it <laughs> as the way it's portrayed. There is a, an effect sequence where they go skiing because it's the kind of movie where you can just get in a terrible intergalactic accident and go skiing a few hours later. Yeah, why not? Yeah, because people don't really care in this movie. So they're skiing, they're out there, and he gets his powers activate, and he flies into the side of a mountain, and he melts everything and turns it into an impromptu hot tub. And instead of being horrified by the plasma <laughs> burning man she just saw, <laughs> there is a shot between Maria Menounos' legs where we see Johnny Storm half naked in the hot tub. And she just drops her poles, indicating they were just about to screw right then and there. So, I mean, it's just the kind of movie it is. It, it is an incredibly lighthearted film with sensibilities very much set in 2005. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's the best way to put it. You have sensibilities set there. Chris Evans was the only one to improvise his own dialogue in this movie. I'm not surprised. I, there is a, an element of, of life to his character. Now, now, we just talked about Jessica Alba. She had a lot to prove. She wanted to go out there and show everybody she could act. Literally, Chris Evans is in the same boat. 
Yeah. He is out there trying to show he's just not some good-looking guy. He's actually able to carry a picture. And this movie didn't help him in that respect no. at all. Yeah, it, it really didn't. As a matter of fact, I, I thought he was a scrub pretty much until I saw Captain America. Because if you want to go back and take a look at uh, Pedro's all-time bad takes, I think I said that that was going to be the black eye in the burgeoning MCU was him playing Captain America. Yeah. And I was shocked when I saw I Captain we America. All had that reaction. And I was like, wow, he's really good here. He's really good. And oddly enough, since that moment, I, I feel like Evans has turned in some of the best work of his career and like things like Knives Out. Because before that, I mean, I'd seen him in like, you know, Cellular and London. Oh, oh boy. I, I hadn't thought about him in London in a long time. Him and Jessica Biel in a, um, I think they're in an apartment in London and it's a bunch of 20 year olds complaining about life. Like that's the movie. Uh, so, I mean, there wasn't a lot of great work from him, even things like sunshine, which is full of a lot of great actors. There's a scene where he freezes to death. And it, I think it's challenges Carrie Elways and Saul for maybe the worst, worst acting you could deliver while dying. I, so cold. It's that kind of bit. Like at the end of Saul, you know, he's like bleeding to death. Describing symptoms, you know, they're, they're both really bad. And th this was the big revelation, you know, in Captain America that sadly I didn't get here. I think he's fine. He can be a little bit annoying and grating. And I understand that the relationship between him and Ben Grimm in the comic traditionally has been Johnny's the antagonist and Grimm is the Ben Grimm. That's the thing is the older person who sort of takes his criticism and his teasing with somewhat good nature and occasional um, you know, slaps and hits and things like that, but it doesn't really work in this movie. He's just a little bit too much of a douchebag. And, you know, he's something, I, a character I can't really identify with at all. As a matter of fact, the only character I really can identify with is Ben Grimm. Yeah. He is, I think, the best part of this movie. Well, Chickless is. Yeah. Chickless really wanted the part. Like I said, yeah. he was excited to do this and it shows. I mentioned earlier, you know, I went to see this and the, the guy I saw with my roommate, he, he mentioned there was only one scene that he liked. And that's a scene with Ben Grimm after they save the, oh, the fire engine, they save the fire engine on the bridge. Yeah. It took me a minute to remember all the millions of comic book <laughs> scenes I've seen of someone saving something from a bridge. <laughs> it's not a great sequence at all. The only thing I think notable about it is that it's a little cheesy and Jessica Alba does the underwear joke, right? Yeah, she takes off her clothes and you see her in her underwear and that's who just gobbled in her underwear. By the way, uh, that scene was added after she agreed to be in the movie. I'm not surprised at that at all. So sexist. Yeah, I'm not surprised at that at all. But that I mean, that was a part of the big part of getting just gobbled in your movies. You got the I TNA. Know, of but Jessica it's Alba. like, come on. Yeah, yeah. But th th that's 2005. Like that was perfectly acceptable. There isn't a single person who raised a stink about that in 2005. I know. And trust me, that clip is still shared like daily on like Reddit celebs forums and stuff like that. So people very much love that shot. It's whatever. You know, you, you can find a lot better porn out there, guys. But <laughs> the point of this is after the sequence is done, Lori Holden, who plays, um, oh my God, I'm so mad. I can't remember her character name. But she's basically Ben Grimm's fiance. Mm -hmm. She just magically works her way over to the bridge somehow. She just guessed that Ben was going to be there. There's no reason for her to be there. Earlier in the movie, Ben Grimm presented himself as the thing, the rock-covered monster to her, and she rejects him, runs away. Yeah. And like I said, she just magically finds her way over to him after he does something heroic. And instead of embracing him or anything like that, 
she takes her wedding ring and she throws it on the pavement and runs away. And the scene that I love, Chickless plays it well. You can see in his eyes, he's heartbroken and he leans down to grab the ring. And as the thing, his fingers are so big, he can't grab it off the ground. He just, he can't yeah, over it's and a good over. Scene. Yeah. And I, I like the way that's played. Like it just, like you're hit in the face by what he is now. And, and, and as in typical comic fashion, Reed has to come over and pick it up and say, don't worry, man, we're, 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 I'll find a solution for this. We're going to figure this out. A cool fact about uh, Michael Chiklis's performance is that Stanley has claimed that Michael Chiklis's The Thing is his favorite performance in a Marvel movie ever. You know, like I said, I, I can't argue with that to some extent because that is the character that Stan Lee remembers The Thing being, you know, from the 60s and the yeah. 70s. Like that is a lot of what Chiklis really brings into the role. And, and weirdly enough, like I said, a lot of the gags with Chickless kind of work. I think they, they have a moment where they x-ray his chest and they're taking a look and say, oh my God, look at this and this and this. And he goes, I used to smoke. Does that make a difference? <laughs> and it's not a great joke, but Chickless delivers it well enough because he's an experienced actor and he's done sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, he's one of the few who had actually done some sitcom work, so it helped. You know, because so much we talk about Jessica Alba, she never really had great comedic timing. So that's something that didn't help anybody out here at all. And that's one of the few gags that I like in our multiple kind of, I, I guess, like gag montages we get when they're in the Baxter building. Like we have two of them, right? Yeah. Two, one when they first get there. And then a few scenes later, after some more experiments, we get more gag sequences. Like, you know, <laughs> Reed Richards <laughs> stretching across the house so you can grab toilet paper to bring into the shitter. Yeah. Like this is the level of comedy that we're really dealing with here. So the actors really had to work hard to make some of these gags work. And most of them did not. Uh, Chickless wore prosthetic teeth to prepare for speaking with, uh, with it. He would practice by reading to his kids every night. So more dedication from our favorite actress in this actor in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, Ch- Chickless was all in on it. He knew it was going to be hell to wear that suit, and he prepped properly. And that's one thing I, I really do appreciate it. Speaking about the action sequence on the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, it was shot using a 200-foot set erected against a blue screen in Vancouver, then later enhanced with CG. Yeah, and this is that time um, in Hollywood that you would start to see the rise of green screen. And and um, any of that kind of effect. Now, they were always used before, but what I mean by that is you might set a green screen up outside to put the city background in. And, and that's not something that was always done at that time in the mid-2000s. Uh, I think a great fact is like Spider-Man, those movies, the, the latest ones with the Holland for the MCU, mm-hmm. almost none of that shot in New York. Not almost, I don't think any of, uh, besides establishing shots, not a frame of it is. It's wow. all green screen. It's all, it's all green screen. Yeah. They're all shooting somewhere in Georgia and they put a few green screens up behind Tom Holland and they just put in New York in the background. So what's the difference between a green screen and a blue screen? Just the color. Pretty much that's it. You would put a green screen up if you, you put a blue screen up if you were going to be working with green elements in the frame. Okay. Yeah. And that's basically it. Cause anything that's that green color is going to be chroma keyed away is the term. You know, and that's basically it. Ain't, it's it's you know, computers looking for the green to replace it, basically, and and that's all it is. I think blue screen is what they started with in the '90s, and then they eventually uh, went over to green screen, and it's pretty much stayed that way now because that's how the chroma key would work. And now, for the most part, any big effect scene, the guys are going to be rotoed out every shot. If you don't know what rotoed out ever means, start looking up After Effects tutorials. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of work, but you know, I mean that that's just how it's done now, and it was starting to get going then, which is kind of interesting. What do you think about uh, Victor Doom in this movie? I think he's kind of cheesy and over <laughs> yeah, the top yeah, and yeah, yeah. kind of 
not a villain. I, I like Julian McMahon a lot. I was a big fan of his scenery chewing from uh, Nip Tuck. And I, I think he, I think he's the right kind of character for the style of movie this is supposed to be, because it's mm-hmm. not very serious. But his interpretation of the character isn't great. And that's not Julian McMahon's fault. It's It's not at all. I mean, just... It makes sense. This is a weak bad guy character in an early comic book movie. You know, these bad guy character roles were never great with the exception of like, you know, Striker or next to, you know, most of the time these bad guys were one note throwaway characters. And sadly, this fate uh, befalls Dr. Doom as well in this picture. They kind of shoehorn some intentions that he has in there. He's more upset that Reed stole his girlfriend than any of the rich background that Dr. Doom has in the comic book, which is a shame. Uh, Dr. Doom has been done wrong quite a bit by comic book movies. So it, it's not a great portrayal. And I, his look isn't bad. I think when he puts on the mask, I like that. Uh, him becoming, you know, part metal. I think it, that works okay too. It does take him a while to get there, but his, his look doesn't bother me, but the portrayal isn't anything great. And I mean, it's not, it's Dr. Doom in name only. You know, Tim Robbins was considering, considered for the Dr. Doom. He's a fan as well. Memory serves me. Yeah, 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 I think he's an old he's an old school fan of that of that comic property. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. I think I've heard him talk about that in an interview. Yeah, that's right. I was I was watching. Um, we recently hit the 30th anniversary of uh, Bob Roberts, um, and that's a movie that he uh, wrote and produced, where he basically plays a <laughs> he plays a rich person who is pretending to act like a poor person to win an election. Hmm. And this was a very novel concept in 1992, and we're literally staring at Mehmet Oz doing that in Pennsylvania yeah. right now. Yeah, and so it's, it's something we deal with a lot today in, in 2022, but it was a novel concept back then. Anyway, we're not talking about Tim Robbins no, and Bob Roberts, no. but I just listened to that interview, and he did mention uh, something about the Fantastic Four. So I, I think he has been a fan. That, that would have made a good choice, but in this movie, it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. Uh, George Clooney and Brendan Fraser were considered for Mr. Fantastic. It's nice to consider people for things. Right? Yeah, like those guys weren't going to come and do that. Well, I mean, no, Fran- Fraser wasn't. He was a star. And Clooney was <laughs> was way too prestige for this. These are my two favorite right here. Trish Stratus was considered for the role that of is true. Storm. That is true. That's cruel. That is true, because I've heard her talk about that. And then David Boreanaz was considered for the role of the thing. I think it would have been a, f- a foolish thing to put Boreanaz behind uh, makeup or just I to know, have him do his, his voice. he's kind of handsome. Yeah, he's a good looking guy. Also, I think Boreanaz is like 6'2". I think he's a big guy. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you were going to put him in, in a movie like that, you'd want to show off his physicality. Um, same thing with like Evans as well. Um, of course, he doesn't really get to fight anybody per se as the human torch, but that's just how that character is. But those would have been interesting decisions, to say the least. I uh, think so. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think the one place the movie could have made an improvement on, because I think you have to live with Jessica Alba as uh, Sue, Sue Storm. But I think as Reed Richards, I think if you'd have been able to get an actor who fit in with this type of role a little bit better, I think it could have worked well. What do you think about the finale of this movie? Well, movies have to come to an end. Yeah. And that's kind of the way I, I feel about it. It does and, just kind of end. And listen, some of the movie has some themes. This is not what I'd call a poorly done piece of crap. It's not that at all. It's underwhelming. It's disappointing. It's cheesy, but it's not terrible. Like there's themes of, you know, you know, Ben Grimm, he desperately wants to become human again to find who he used to be. And, you know, he gets past a lot of those issues. He gets past a, a lot of those problems, actually. You know, he does show some character growth and that comes into play in the finale, which I like, you know. 
he has to choose to to be the thing again to save his friends. And, and I, I like that, you know. I, I like whenever you're going to show me a whole movie's worth of work and have it pay off into something at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoy those that, sorts of elements. Nobody else really learns a lesson in the movie, though. Because, I mean, what what's Sue's character arc? Nothing. Hmm. What's Reed's character arc? Yeah. Nothing. I don't know. You know, I mean, you know, maybe being a little bit more open to the two of them, but their relationship is so hollow, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So, and, and you know, there's a little bit of character development within uh, Johnny as well. You know, he's basically just trying not to be a douchebag all the time. And he has mild success at that. I mean, the finale isn't a great action sequence. If anything, the movie does have a good action sequence, and that's Johnny running from the missile. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Doom fires a heat-seeking missile right at the Baxter building, and there's a great sequence where... Sue's trying to convince him not to jump off the building. He's like, I'm already going to do it. And he jumps off. He, we get the line, flame on, which is his catchphrase. You know, he basically takes the missile outside of the city. And it, it's a nice scene. It's nothing to write home about, but it's a nice sequence. But otherwise, there's nothing really great to go back and watch this film for action-wise. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so, I mean, that that's one thing that, that really holds it uh, back, definitely, so... Okay, well, do you have anything else you want to mention about this movie? I, I think the only thing that I, I really want to mention about it is uh, this movie, despite all the negative things that we said and all the negative reviews that it received at the time, big hit, um, made a lot of money. I think brought in $333 million worldwide, and so we got a sequel a few years later, which uh, managed to give us <laughs> – well, the movies weren't comic book accurate, so we had a decent version of The Silver Surfer, I suppose – a slightly better version of Dr. Doom, Dr. Doom and Galactus represented by a fucking cloud. Yeah, this surpassed Scary Movie as the highest grossing movie directed by an African-American. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, it, it, it's not bad. It, it was a big hit. Like, comic book movie, People were jazzed about comic book movies in 2005. They were just so excited to go see superheroes on the big screen. It's not like now where we're desensitized yeah. to it and we're looking for any reason to go to a theater to go see Thor do something. You know, people were, were just so excited back then. It was like wrestling in the 90s. Just people were out of their minds to see Stone Cold hit somebody with a chair. Well, we hadn't seen anything like that. Yeah. They, there, wasn't, there wasn't an action movie where these characters that are larger than life are right there for us. Yeah. You know, exploiting all of our wants and desires. Yeah, because, you know, X-Men and, and Spider-Man were the gold standard here. And that that's what we had. You know, otherwise you were getting Daredevil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lesser fair. And this was above things like Daredevil. I mean, you can debate back and forth which one's a better movie, but I mean, you're hustling backwards that argument. The point is, this had a much higher budget and much more marketing than those movies. It's a tentpole movie for 2005, and you know what? It worked. Um, we're never going to talk about the sequel, but I mean, if you want, if you like this movie and, and you want a little bit more, there is that at least. And they got Lawrence Fishburne in there as the voice of the Silver Surfer, which is neat, I guess. Okay, so now we have a Fantastic Four stick. Dr. Storm, we gave you six years and millions of dollars, and you gave us nothing. What's different now? Reed Richards. He will answer to questions. Fan Forced it, uh, from 2015. So this is a legendarily bad production. Yeah. I mean, like, this movie... Because, listen, during the course of the show, we're going to talk about some movies that have legendarily bad productions. And this is probably... You know, top three uh, out of any of those. And like one day we'll do Island Dr. Moreau, which is even crazier than this movie, but not by much. I mean, that movie had Marlon Brando losing his mind, so that's something different. This movie had 
one big element that, that never should have got there, and that's Josh Trank. And, and listen, you can feel how you want to about Mr. Trank and his abilities and his skills, but obviously the system in, two, in 2015 of taking a director who had made a nice low-budget movie which was Chronicle, which is a good movie. I like Chronicle a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice it's a nice superhero film from that era. And found footage film, The Boot, a rare found footage movie that has a happy ending, and it's not a horror film. In the old system, like when Christopher Nolan made, um, he, when he got his start, he got to make Insomniac after Memento. Mm-hmm. He got to make it like a $40 million movie before he went and did The Dark Knight, an $80 million movie. And then that was a hit. He got to do whatever he wanted in The Dark Knight Returns. Or, or in The Dark Knight, you know, uh, with a $150, $200 million budget, all IMAX shot, you know. Yeah. He, you know, he got to rise to that level to learn how to do that. Josh Trank made like a $5 million movie, found footage, and then all of a sudden is thrown in the deep end of a $150 million blockbuster movie. And he absolutely drowned in that deep end when he never should have been put there at all. Because nothing in his career indicated that he was going to be able to do that. I understand a lot of Hollywood is about taking chances on new directors and things like that. But, you know, somebody tried to make the example to me. It's like Steven Spielberg getting that chance with Jaws. And I was like, Jaws wasn't a $150 million movie. It wasn't a big budget movie. Of I mean, it had a good budget, but it wasn't one of the biggest expensive movies that the studio was going to do that year. Which fantastic, which fan four stick was. That was one of the biggest movies Fox was going to produce that year. So Josh Trank should never have been in this position. And when he got there, frankly, you know, I mean, listen, this is his fault. The studio who listened to his pitch and, you know, they got a movie to what he wanted. They clearly should have said no earlier at some point at any other point besides when they're making the freaking movie. Yeah. yeah. When you really can't change a whole lot is when they actually tried to start reigning in his power and changing things. So, I mean, like this movie is just a disaster because they hired the wrong guy and the studio didn't know what they were doing. Just like Fox's show. That's why Fox is owned by Disney now guys, because they didn't know what the hell they were doing for so long on so many properties. Yeah. And this is one of them. Yeah. They got lucky with the Simpsons and (laughs) X-Files. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You know, I mean, they get lucky that Brian Singer's an X-Men fan. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, if you want to get right down to it, because if you then don't bring in a, a top quality director like him to make those movies, who knows what happens to comic books, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it might never have really taken off. We might never gotten even Raimi an opportunity to do Spider-Man or anything like that. But, you know, they were lucky to get a good director to do those X-Men movies. and They didn't get that same opportunity here. But even then, Singer worked his way up to be able to make an X-Men movie. And also the first X-Men movie wasn't one of the biggest movies Fox did that year. It was good that it made money, but it was just surplus. Like, if it didn't make money, they just write it off and be whatever. This movie crippled the Fantastic Four and hurt Fox badly. Yeah, this is one of the movies that Stanley decided to not make a cameo on. I think he was tired of Fantastic Four bullshit. Oh, I, I, you know, I, now that you mentioned that, I just realized that yeah. he did not make a cameo in this movie. He declined. Well, and here's the thing. As the movie was being made, there were whispers about the production pretty much all throughout Hollywood. Cause even myself, like, you know, even listening to podcasts or anything like that at the time, like you could just hear like, Oh dude, this fantastic four movie coming out. is going to be a disaster. And this was, was, was almost like a year to go <laughs> that people were already talking that this movie is falling apart. Yeah. I mean, the film was originally two hours and 20 minutes down. It was cut to 
one hour and 40 minutes, three whole action scenes were removed. Yeah. Yeah. And you, three whole action scenes we could have probably used Mm -hmm. because there's no fucking action. Yeah. Nothing happens for, 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 for quite a while. And matter of fact, if you go and watch the original trailers, you can see like action shots that weren't in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Posters. (laughs) Quite a few. Yeah. Had like a, I know uh, somebody was complaining that the movie posters had like a scene of uh, like a burnt out New York, basically. Yeah. And none of that yeah. is ever shown. No, in the none movie. of it. Yeah, none of that's ever there. And listen, I, I don't know if what was there. What I do know is that there is this, is that at one point, Josh Trank presented his two and a half hour cut to Fox with a different finale, a largely downplayed Dr. Doom, uh, a fantastic car. That's right. The Fantastic Car was in this. And all of that was something that Fox hated. So when you watch this movie, you will have 45 minutes to an hour, I guess. It's about 45 minutes until they go to Planet Zero, right? Yeah. You have 45 minutes until that moment. And once they return, you have this body horror section come in. And all of this is Josh Trank's vision for what he wanted to do with the Fantastic Four. And you know what's really surprising once I got to watch it is this you know, 40 to 50 minute section of the movie isn't bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. It's following up on things. It's picking up a little momentum as we go along. This is Trank's vision just laid out there and it's not awful, but it's something. The movie opens really nicely. Yeah. You, you, you are introduced into a young Reed Richards. Granted, it's not perfect. There's some, you know, there's some cheese there too. Uh, Why the hell um, Sue and her father are just scouting. Are just scouting high school science fairs, looking for a genius. I have no idea. Maybe they already knew about Reed Richards. I I don't know, but it's not very clear in the scene. Either way, it's stupid. But, you know, after this, like, the movie comes together pretty nicely as a movie about science and the repercussions of going against your better instincts with science. Yeah. Like, when they go to Planet X or Planet Zero and it blows up in their face and they all come back, like, that's what it is, is body horror. Mm -hmm. You know, Reed is stretched out. Ben is a pile of rocks. He can't form his body yet. Um, Johnny is burning constantly. Yeah, constantly he can't put himself fire. out. And, and yeah, he Sue, really can't do that without the suit. And Sue is flashing in and out yeah. of invisibility. Yeah, she's coming in and out of the visible spectrum. And that's kind of a neat idea for a movie. Now, here's the problem. It's not the best way to do a Fantastic Four movie, though. Because the Fantastic Four are lighter characters. Yes, there can be some edge here and there, but for the most part, they're not body horror kind of characters. Like when they hired Josh Trank and this vision, when Fox desperately needed the name of the show, gritty reboot, they went as far as they could the direction without checking what the fuck the property was. Mm -hmm. And this isn't the kind of property where you want to do body horror or any kind of thing like that. It's just, it does it. It it weighs the movie down as much as I do like that innovative aspect of it. Let's talk about the movie's tone. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. Just, 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 just what I was going to get into. Does the dark tone fit the movie? No. I, I think, the, listen, for Trank's vision, there is a certain level of darkness that was needed, clearly. Yeah. But the big problem with all of that is, is all the work laid in the first hour, there is... One year later, title card. Mm -hmm. It pops up right in the middle of the movie. And after this, we are watching what is the studio's version 
of how they thought the movie should end from what they saw from Josh Trank's version. Yeah. And the tone from this point is completely different. Yeah. Where you have a a slower, let me stress, slower, methodically paced film. You are basically just given like a Cliff Notes version of a cheesy superhero flick right after this moment. And it completely kills any momentum the film might have had. The effects aren't good. You can see, you can clearly tell there's a sequence in a forest where the thing drops down. And Reed Richards wasn't supposed to be there because he's clearly green screened in. Yeah. Clear as day. You have that terrible green screen work. You have the dollar store wigs they put on Kate Mara. Oh, my God. Helmet hair. Yeah. Yeah. Like at one point you feel like she's just lower head and headbutt somebody with that wig. Well, in the beginning of the movie, she has like two tones to her hair, like a reddish and a blonde. Mm -hmm. And then they go with just a blonde wig and it fluctuates throughout the movie. It's like, we're so stupid. We're not going to notice. Yeah. Yeah. And and because of the way the movie is done, you know, them sort of Frankensteining this new plot and new ending into the movie. Like there's certain sequences where they were cut to her from the original shoot in with her hair and then cut back to her with the wig. And it's man, it's, it's jarring, completely jarring. I mean, you can totally feel the holes in this movie. You really can. You can drive right through them in the fantastic car that was cut out. (laughs) Uh, The garage that Reed is working in as a child, that same garage, is what Biff keeps his car in in Back to the Future. Oh, really? Too. Oh, just shot on the Universal backlot? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That's cool. Very cool. Movie definitely drags on, on and on and on. Yeah. What do you think about the generic soundtrack? Did you even notice there was a soundtrack? Because I didn't notice it until like halfway through the movie. <laughs> yeah, the, the score is anything to, to write home about. And they had quite a few composers on this project, I, I do believe, right? I I don't know. Yeah. I, think, I couldn't find anything on the, the soundtrack. Yeah, because I know they went through a few guys to put this together. But I mean, it's not much of it. I tell you one thing. I, I didn't come away humming the Fantastic Four theme. It's so generic. Yeah, because even you know movies that I don't particularly care for. Like we talked about Judge Dredd earlier in the year. I like that theme, even though I don't care for that movie all that much. But, you know, it's still a good theme. I can recognize that. Um, this movie's music is just inconsequential. You know, that's it. No, nothing to write home about, basically. What? In God's name, is this movie's motive? Does it even have I, I, one? Here, I'll tell you. I'll tell is you, there a real point? Here's the movie's motive. Disney. Because Disney was coming. The MCU is firing on all cylinders. Fox is taking a look at their slate of movies, and it's just not competing. And they have this Fantastic Four property. They're going to lose, and they've got to do something with it. So this is what throws this whole thing into motion giving Josh Trank the opportunity he doesn't deserve, picking a direction that is foolish for them, and then Fox doing the stupid Fox stuff that costs them, which is giving Josh Trank a $150 million budget, and the day they start shooting, announcing they've cut that budget by over $25 million. So he has to scramble to get rid of things that weren't in his, you know, that he just can't afford anymore. So, you know, these moments that come in here, that that's what lays waste to, 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 this, to this movie is that they had this need to hold on to these rights above all, when clearly this movie shows that above all, Fox should have lost the rights to the Fantastic Four because they had no idea what the hell to do with it. Yeah, it's it's funny that you say that because the reshoots alone cost $33 million extra. Yeah, yeah. After after, after they held that extra money, they basically had to put in more, more cash for uh, the producer, Simon Kinberg, to go in and shoot. Josh Trank was... 
supposedly on set for these reshoots, but he was not allowed to direct. So mm. I don't know what he was doing, to be perfectly honest, other than just, you know, chatting with the actors and, you know, and he probably wasn't friends with the crew. But the movie was also supposed to be shot in 3D, but it was canceled because of the reshoots. It's supposed to be converted to 3D, not shot. Oh. The movie was always supposed to be shot in 2D, oh, okay. but they canceled the conversion because they were literally running as fast as they could to complete the effects for all the reshoots. Because wow. they were doing reshoots, I mean, up until like two months before the movie came out. You know, that's pretty, pretty quick to have a turnaround if you think about it. You know, they, they really were working at the 11th hour to get this done. And, and listen, there are a lot of movies that, that do this. I know like um, Kevin Costner makes a joke about Waterworld doing a reshoot uh, three weeks before the movie hit uh, theaters, which is crazy, especially in the 90s. But, you know, th- this movie had those those issues as well. You know, you know tons of reshoots. And, and like I said, the original draft of this film did not involve Dr. Doom as an antagonist. He wasn't even called Dr. Doom. <laughs> he wasn't. He was it, Van Doom. Is what it was. They made a big deal early on. And this is another thing that, that hit this movie hard as well, is that Josh Trank likes social media. And he should have kept himself off of social media because he released a lot of info about the film early on that is not like the Fantastic Four. Like talking about at one point, Dr. Doom was more of a blogger, apparently, at one point. I think I read that. Yeah, yeah. And this sent the Internet up in arms. So we get a little bit more of a traditional Dr. Doom in the movie because of that. And you can even tell, like... Is he a traditional Doctor Doom? Because I said a little I, bit more. I a thought... A little bit more. I thought that his... I thought his portrayal of Doctor Doom in this movie was worse than the 2005 version. Yeah, yeah. This is the worst portrayal of Doctor Doom. This is even worse than the Roger Corman film. Like, I have no idea uh, uh, anything about Doctor Doom. I, I don't know him as a character. The mo- the, both movies really sucked at telling me who Dr. Doom is. Weirdly enough, the Roger Corman film might be the best portrayal of Dr. Doom on screen. And that's not a joke or anything like that. It literally might be the best portrayal of him. That's sad. Yeah, yeah, it really is. First of all, his look is appropriate to the comic book. And he kind of has a little bit more of a, of a comic book origin, which none of these two versions of the character really have. I don't. And that was another one of the things that hit the Internet hard was the first pictures of Dr. Doom in the cloak. And his look of like the the suit that's fused with him, yeah, which ends up kind of looking like melted trash bags on him, yeah, with some green stuff in the middle. Th- that did not go over well with the internet, to say the least. Fans were not happy at all with that, and you know it causes more backlash. It causes more studio interference. Now there's more cooks in the kitchen, and Josh Trank is becoming more unhinged as the production is going along because you're getting reports out of set of like. Trank being incredibly unprofessional. You're getting reports on set of Trank being drunk at high. Um, you have reports that leak about him getting a house to rent on the set or you know, close to set. And that he ends up destroying for a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage. Yeah. All of these reports are coming in him being a huge jerk to Kate Mara because he didn't want to cast her. Yeah, he bullied her through the movie. Yeah. At one point on social media, Josh Trank talked about, he wanted to hire a black actress to play the role, but I can tell you that there aren't, there isn't a single report from any of the research I did about a black actress ever being seriously considered. I read a, a totally opposite thing where he wanted the Sue and uh, Johnny Storm to be biracial. Yeah, because that's where he he came up in a biracial home. Yeah, so 
I, I kind of found that odd that he said that. Yeah, yeah. He he did go a few ways with that. And I did notice that. he. This is another thing about doing research in this movie. Josh Trank has a lot of conflicting statements about, yeah. about where this came from. Because as far as I know, for the Sue Storm role, I think the serious consideration was um, Margot Robbie, who would never have done it, and uh, Sorce Ronan, uh, who might have done it. I think that's who he wanted from what I believe I saw, is he preferred her. Uh, Emmy Rossum was also considered as well. Yeah, I had that written down. Emmy Rossum and Margot Robbie auditioned for Sue Storm. Yeah, but I, I, I do believe he wanted Sorche because he, uh, you know, same thing with Miles Teller. He pushed hard for that, and the studio just wasn't, you know, the studio gave him Miles, but they ended up putting in uh, Kate Mara, and he was a little bitch about it basically throughout the entire production, and was a jerk to her, and 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 didn't like her, and you know, and you can see if you, by the way, you can go and check out some of the promotion that these actors did on the panel. First off, you can tell by their answers in the panel, they haven't seen the movie. Yeah. Because they're getting questions about it, and you can tell Michael B. Jordan is pulling answers out of his ass <laughs> for any question that comes up. And somebody gave them a question, like, what would you prefer, 12 angry crew members or one angry director? And they're like, what's worse? And everybody immediately goes, one angry director. And, like, Kate Mara goes like, yeah, they can ruin a whole production. And just for that, un- unprompted, just completely says that, looking right into the camera. You know, so you could tell she did not have a great time on this movie. No. And it shows her performance stinks. And also, she has nothing to do. And it's not even her fault. Like, yeah. not, she's she doesn't deserve to be treated with, like, an asshole. No, no, no. Especially not by not by somebody of the caliber of Josh yeah, Trank. come on now. Whose best movie is Chronicle. And, you know, I mean, like, I mean, that's it. Like, he just... He didn't have the kind of cachet to go and act like he did. He was running around acting like he was Scorsese when he hadn't done any of that kind of work. Right. You know, I think one of the things that I read that was very interesting about him is that he was directing actors down to the most minute detail. And I really do mean that. So if there's anybody out there who's ever worked with actors, done anything on, you know, in film, short films, anything like that, you generally want to let an actor find his character and to see. You don't want to micromanage him. Mm-hmm. And Josh Trank was literally going up to these guys and going like, okay, you're going to say this line and you're going to say it like this. And he'd give them a line reading, which you're not supposed to do. And by line reading, I mean like you'd say like, my name's Johnny Storm and I'm on fire. Like you're not supposed to tell an actor that. You're just supposed to tell him what the line is and he's supposed to interpret that. Well, he was giving line readings and not only was he giving line readings, but he was telling actors when to breathe and when to blink in certain sequences. That's ridiculous. That's yeah, absurd. I'm like people make jokes about the things like Kubrick did all the time. I guarantee you Stanley Kubrick never did anything like that where you're going to have to breathe at a certain point and blink, you know, as part of your blocking. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It's, but it shows that Trank didn't know what to do. He'd lost complete control. He'd lost all confidence in himself. You know, this production had fallen apart around him and he didn't have the skills, the fortitude of the support network to get him through this situation. You know, and like I said, <laughs> Yes, he is to blame for a lot of these problems, but the studio didn't do anything to help this situation out either. Yeah. You know, they, they led to a lot of this when either committing to Trank's vision, because listen, not committing to Trank's vision, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> they wasted an extra $33 million and, you know, all they got was more bad press. Yeah. And factually, the, uh, the visual effects house, O-Toy, had difficulty with Josh Trank because they kept changing the size of the thing and at a whim. Oh, yeah. So yeah. they were constantly trying to do stuff, and mm-hmm. they kept being told, no, he needs to be bigger. No, he needs to be smaller. No, he needs to be bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller. So they were like, 
what do we do? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I mean, these effects guys, they're already worked about as hard as they really can be. So, you know, these guys are pulling 14, 15 hour days, just like regular crew members. Yeah. You know, they're pushed to the absolute breaking point. So when a director comes in like, no, what do you mean? He has to be smaller. That's a lot of work and, and it, you know, costs people time and hours and. You know, I know people just say, oh, it's just all money and budget. But, you know, those, you know, those are people who don't get to go home and see their families because Josh Trank doesn't know what the fuck he wants to do. He's unsure of his vision. Why is Johnny Storm upset with his dad? We have like absolutely no build up to that or a frame of reference whatsoever. Oh, you would get that weird Fast and the Furious scene right yes. in the middle of this movie. I don't know. Nothing. No, you know, that that that's OK. You know, <laughs> here's the thing. Those moments could have been fine with his father. If we go and it eventually pays off into something, right? Yes. Or if there's a great sequence where he wants a lot from his son, which he says multiple times, right? And he's saddened by seeing his son become the weapon of the human torch by the government. But that's not there. It's not in the movie. <laughs> so, like, I'm, I'm fantasy booking for you what should have occurred to bring these characters together. And we don't get those moments at all. So it, it's tough for me to say, like, all those moments are garbage when maybe Trank did have something to pay that off. But we'll never know because Fox had to make a regular comic book movie out of the abstract, darker movie they were pitched. Mm -hmm. You know, because of that, like I said, everything gets tossed out. But as it sits in the movie now, judging it as it is there, pointless. Completely pointless. <laughs> it doesn't pay off into anything, sadly. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, none of the characters really get anything to, to, to do in the movie. Is there anything that you liked about this movie? No. I'm well, like I, I I take it back. I take it back. I did. I like I said. I, I did appreciate some of the slower moments and some of the build, and I, I did like when we got a little bit of the body horror moments because I felt like that was a movie and a vision that I wanted to see. But I mean, you're talking about only getting glimpses of the things that I might enjoy mm -hmm. or like, not even being able to have real scenes that I could be like, "Oh man, amazing!" Yeah, you know, nothing like that. I like the intro, and I liked. Uh... Dr. Doom um, popping heads. Yeah, yeah. So th th I know that's all added later on, basically. Because first of all, you can you can tell it's added because Dr. Doom can't move his lips. So he can't speak. It's just a voiceover. Why? Because it's cheaper. Yeah. I, I, w I, I would have to assume at some point they did plan for him to be able to speak properly without just the voice emanating from... <laughs> you would think. But, you know, once again, it's just it's not that kind of movie. It's not that kind of flick. So, yeah, he wasn't supposed to be the bad guy. He is quickly developed. I mean, we're talking like, what, 15, 14 minutes before the end of the movie? He's running through the whole facility, popping heads. Yeah. And then going back to Planet Zero so we can have our finale. And our heroes come together in quick, cheesy fashion. We get a pretty lame fight sequence between everybody. It's barely a fight scene. Actually, as a matter of fact, Doctor Doom is literally popping heads like he's some sort of god. And then he can barely box with a man who can stretch himself. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's disappointing to say the least. You yeah, know. there's no talking about motivation again. There's no real reason why Dr. Doom is the villain. No, there's, he was left there. And he was angry, I guess. I guess he's going to he's going to destroy. His anger isn't even apparent. Yeah, he's going to destroy our world <laughs> before we destroy his world is the only reasoning he really gives us. And I mean, that's not much of a reason yeah. to be. Perfectly frank. I mean, we, I mean, if we'd seen him surviving on that planet, I mean, a flashback to him trying to survive even five minutes could have done a lot for his characterization, anything. And I, I'd have to assume, well, here's the thing. 
none of that was there because from everything I've read about this film, Josh Trank planned for Dr. Doom and all that to be a big part of the sequel, not this movie. So that's why all that stuff is added so hastily and there's nothing else to cut to or to, to bring in with Dr. Doom because that wasn't what the finale was. I don't know what the finale was. I don't know who the bad guy was. You know, there's some production shots of them on Planet Zero with the Fantasticar. In Mole Man. And- yeah, I mean, there's, there, you know, I, I just don't know, to be perfectly honest. You know, all I know is this, this abomination that Fox gave us of Trank's vision, their coping mechanism <laughs> of producing, and, you know, whatever the editor could try to salvage at the end of the day. That's all we get. All right. Well, um, let's see if we got anything else here we can talk about. Uh, we pretty much trashed this movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we, we very much did. I, I think I, I mentioned most of the things I, I wanted to get to with Trank and how upset I am with the, you know, and once again, this is, this is why Fox is out of business, you know, because not, not a lot of other studios would have found themselves in this kind of situation. Yeah, I don't think I have. Oh, I do have one thing I wanted to mention. There is one person that loved this movie. Oh, yeah. His name is one Tommy Wiseau. (laughs) He loved this movie so much, he wanted to direct the sequel. He couldn't have been a worse pick. I mean, honestly, you know what? Give me that movie. Let Tommy Wiseau take the Fantastic Four and just just give me everything that I I would want in the world. Because, you know, as much as we talk about the, the last movie is so underwhelming and cheesy... Like, that's a way more entertaining watch than what Josh Trank and yeah. Fox gave us in 2015. And a, a Tommy Wiseau version would probably have been infinitely more entertaining uh, <laughs> than that. Earlier in this episode, you talked about this is the, one of the few films that Stan Lee does not make a cameo, which I didn't notice until you said that. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, just, I, I guess I got used to him not being there that, you know, I, I, don't, I got used to not seeing him. But apparently when he, Stan Lee died, Josh Trank said he disappointed Stan Lee. That he had a good opportunity and he wasn't able to follow through with some of the things he had talked to him about. And apparently when everything in the production went down and the rumors were leaking and <clears throat> Josh Trank got fired from his Star Wars project. Yeah, Josh Trank was supposed to make a Boba Fett film that all the production rumors on Fantastic Four killed for him. Yeah. Stanley sent him a letter basically, are you okay? You all right? Something I could do for you, kid? And he never answered him back. And apparently that was a great regret that Trank had. Not answering, but I was like, "Who doesn't answer, Stan Lee?" No kidding. Yeah, yeah, he especially movie. He was checking on you, like he's making sure you're okay because he'd heard some nasty things, and he was like, "Oh, that Trank guy, he was doing fantastic work. He seemed like a nice kid." You know, at least that's the way I like to think of like Stan Lee looking at the situation. That, I guess that does it for our movies. Mm-hmm. Um, we can start looking at the reviews now. Okay, so the Fantastic Four 2005 got a 4.2 user rating. 5.7 IMDb and a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. Fantastic Four 2015 or Fan Stick as you like to call Fan it. Fan Stick. Can you say why you call it Fan Stick? Because that's what the marketing was. Yeah. yeah so the, that's how it used to be. It was Fan and they put the number four in the middle and then it was Stick. <laughs> so I was like, well, it's not Fantastic Four. It's Fan Stick. <laughs> you know, th- these guys in, in, in <laughs> these guys who work with graphics and with Photoshop have to do all these work for movies. Sometimes they make a decision like that. It's really stupid. And that's one of them. Uh, Fan Four Stick got two point three user rating, four point three on IMDb, and a nine percent Rotten Tomatoes. And then I have the reviews. The review for Fantastic Four two thousand five. It enrages me whenever people defend Crap Fest like 
fantastic for calling it escapist entertainment, therefore making it critic-proof because no matter how banal the dialogue or how atrocious the performance, it is just meant to be mindless entertainment, right? I don't hate Fantastic Four because it's fun-spirited and candy-coated. So is Spider-Man, Singing in the Rain, or the upcoming Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But the reason why I despise Fantastic Four is that it never strives to be more than heady strong, heady string of superhero cliches bound together by lame script. The whole thing reeks like stale cheese. The sorry attempt at injecting some character development, such as the thing feeling like he doesn't belong, has been done before and done much better. Fantastic Four just swallows in its own mediocrity, perfectly self-content that it's not meant to be taken seriously anyways. And we as the movie-watching public have to compromise by saying, it's good for what it was. But why should we compromise when there are other better movies out there? I believe there is no such thing as perfection in cinema, but there are films that come dangerously close to achieving it. We have to, we have the verifiable pick of the litter. Why we continue to patronize trash such as Fantastic Four is beyond me. Oof, that was rough. I think I really did not like the movie, and he almost calls us out for not completely trashing the film. But, I mean, I would say this is not, he makes the point that not any film was perfect. Well, I don't think there's any film that's just garbage. Yeah. Like, nobody ever sets out to make a piece of shit. Right. Nobody ever, even Tommy Wiseau didn't set out to do that when he made The Room. That wasn't the goal. He, he wanted to make a good movie. He just didn't know how to do that. And he, he made a mistake. But he still gave us something. And same with like, Tim's story. He wasn't trying to make, like, a, a, a you know, what it came out as. But it came out as something that was cheesy and underwhelming. And, and the character work was terrible. It wasn't something he was trying for. It's just how it happened. You know, nothing really came together. But there's still moments of this film that I that I can enjoy performances, uh, art design. I, I think uh, you know some of the effects work early on, you know, I, and and because of that, like I always find ways to appreciate something in a movie. Good for what it is. Listen, sometimes that's just how art works, especially when you're making art, you know, for capitalism. Mm -hmm. you know, like you you have to make a movie to make a lot of rich people happy, shareholders at Fox. So yeah. you know that's the way it goes. So sometimes, listen, it's just the economy of what cinema and art is today. You know, that's just how it goes. Sometimes a movie is just good for what it is. You know, it might be a sin to him, but it's a reality today, in my opinion. Okay. And finally, the review, the one-star review for Fan4 Stick. Oh, no, 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 no. Not until one Mr. Roger Ebert oh, gets okay. to weigh in on Tim Story's 2005 Fantastic Four. Go for it. <clears throat> Mr. Ebert says, So you get in a spaceship, and you venture into orbit to research a mysterious star storm hurtling towards Earth. There's a theory it may involve properties of use to man. The spaceship is equipped with shields to protect its passengers from harmful effects. But the storm arrives ahead of schedule and saturates everybody on board with unexplained but powerful energy that creates radical molecular changes in their bodies. They return safely to Earth, only to discover that Reed Richards, the leader of the group, has a body that can take any form or stretch to any unimaginable lengths. Call him Mr. Fantastic. Ben Grimm develops superhuman powers in a vast, bulky body that seems to be made of stone. Call him the Thing. Sue Storm can become invisible at will and generate force fields that can contain propane explosions in case you have a propane explosion that needs containing, but want the option of being invisible. Call her the Invisible Woman. And her brother, Johnny Storm has a body that can burn at supernova temperatures. Call him the Human Torch. And I almost forgot about the villain, Victor Von Doom, who becomes Dr. Doom 
and wants to use the properties of the Star Storm and the powers of the Fantastic Four for his own purposes, and he will eventually become metallic. By this point in the review, are you growing a little restless? Wait, what am I going to do? Just list names and actors, superpowers, and nicknames forever? That's exactly how this movie feels. It's all set up in demonstration, and naming, and dissecting, and discussing, and demonstrating, and it never digests the complications of the Fantastic Four, and gets on to telling a compelling story. Sure, there's a nice sequence where the thing keeps a fire truck from falling off a bridge, but when you see one fire truck safe from falling off a bridge, you've seen them all, guys. The Fantastic Four, in short, underwhelming. The edges kind of blur between them and other superhero teams. That's understandable. How many people could pass a test right now on who the X-Men are and what their powers are? Or would even want to? I wasn't watching Fantastic Four to study it, but to be entertained by it. But how could I be amazed by a movie that makes its own characters seem so indifferent about themselves? That's good words. Yeah, yeah. I think Ebert puts it pr- pretty nicely. He like, always does. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the, like the movie is sort of running to get the quota in of the things you need for a comic movie mm-hmm. without actually telling you any of that kind of story. It's sort of weird that we have this reboot that is supposed to be dark and different, but at the end, it, it has a lot of the same problems, right? Mm-hmm. And almost tells the same story because Reed is trying to cure all the Fantastic Four in the first movie, and it's his only motivation in the new one. Right? Right. Yeah, he's trying to save everybody in that second half. And it's sort of weird how, despite the darkness, they're kind of the same. So lay that one-star review on me for Fan 4 Stick. Okay, it's a long one. Are you ready? I'm ready. For this one, I'm ready. I was waiting for something to happen, and then the movie was over. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I chose it because it was perfect. No, it it, it really does get it across. Because as much (laughs) as I, I talked about it, and as much as I... Look at me being the apologist for any filmmaker. I tried to give Trank a little bit of credit on you know what occurs in the first hour. At the end of the day, it's a slow-ass movie, and not a lot happens. I yeah. mean, this might be the only comic book film I could think of without an action scene. I mean, honestly, you have the finale at the end, which is five minutes. Yeah, that's why I was screaming about it earlier. Yeah, you, you have the head-popping scene, but that's not really an action sequence as much as it is a horror scene. And- they cut out three whole action yeah, sequences. Yeah. You see Ben Grimm destroying tanks in a slideshow on a screen. I'm telling you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when, when Tim Blake Nelson's character is talking about it, like that, that's all you get to see. That's it. You don't, you, you don't really get anything else. And it, it's kind of amazing when you really think about it. Like, <laughs> You expect, like, Richard Donner's Superman from the 70s to be light on action sequences since it's the very first real comic book movie. But that has way more action than this movie does. Mm-hmm. And actually has characters you care about. So, like, this, you know, this movie, man. <laughs> yep, this movie sucked. Uh, and if you want to tell us how much we suck, you can call us on uh You can call us? You can get your phones out. You can get your touchstone phone, your rotary phone, and you, you can, can type in one eight hundred gritty reboot. And uh, that, will... that's all lies. <laughs> no, you can email us at grittyrebootcast at gmail dot com. That way, we can hear from you guys. We love to hear from you guys. Um, we get excited when we get some reviews yeah. and we get some comments. So any kind of comments, and also but don't forget to reach out to us as well. Uh, gritty reboot at Instagram and TikTok as well. Um, we are on all social medias, guys. We're everywhere. So you just look for that and you can reach out and talk to us, like I said, about anything. Yeah. Um, we're always down to get that criticism and any kind of feedback. 
And we are taking requests because um, this is not the next episode. It's in two weeks. We're do our first fan request episode of uh, the town that dreaded sunset. Yep. So we're excited for that. And hopefully next week we can get some movies that I might be entertained by. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this Trust me, doing the bad movies can be really rough, especially when it's things like Trank's Fantastic Four, which is just kind of dull. Like I can kind of make some jokes about Tim stories, but Josh Trank's it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it, I it, agree. This is a rough week, guys. So we're, we're, we're going to try to cleanse our palate with some better movies. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll see you next time.